Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFIL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, Senior Instructor at Institute on the Constitution, and with me, my two scholars and gentlemen, this good Friday morning is Phil Duffy, our Constitutional Instructor, and Mike Jeremita, our warrior in the courtroom. And by the way, Mike has an excellent show just before ours on Friday morning, 7 a.m. Mike G. in the morning, The Law Matters, and encourage you to check out his show there on WFYL. We're in a series we're calling The Dirty Dozen. We're looking at 12 Supreme Court cases that were hmm, <laughs> really dirty in a, in a number of different ways. And we're going to see one of the dirtiest of those this morning. Uh, but actually, in looking at these, our purpose is to examine how sometimes the Supreme Court got it wrong. Now, that's not to say they never got it right. We'll we'll do a series after this one of uh, maybe a dozen good Supreme Court cases. But we want to illustrate how it is so uh, prevalent that the Constitution can be construed, twisted and distorted to accomplish something that is eh, clearly not just and not right in any way, shape or form. And so this morning we're going to examine uh, a series of the cases during World War. World War II, which wound up incarcerating Japanese citizens of the United States. That is, they were full citizens of the United States. It wasn't like they were uh, immigrants here and maybe had broken into our country illegally, <laughs> such as we have, what, five million since the O'Biden administration began. So, you know, it's not that they were here illegally. They were here completely legally. Many of them were citizens of these United States. And yet, they were incarcerated in internment camps. And uh, this is a very kind of disturbing chapter in our history. But we need to look at what was the reasoning? Why did the Supreme Court do what they did? And did they have any constitutional basis, any ground of constitutional argumentation that really looks at what the Constitution intended to accomplish for the citizens of these United States? Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts this morning on these three uh, cases? Well, collectively, they're called Nisei cases. And Nisei is a Japanese language term used in countries in North America and South America to specify the ethnically Japanese children born in the new country to Japanese-born immigrants, who are called Issei. The Issei are considered the second generation, and the grandchildren of the Japanese-born immigrants are called Sansei, or third generation. They were native-born citizens of the United States, just as are the children of Irish, Swedish, and Polish parents who gave birth to children on U.S. soil. Having met other qualifications, they were fully eligible to run for the presidency of the United States. Nothing in the Constitution of the United States disqualified them to any right or privilege extended to other native-born citizens of the United States. To comprehend the injustice in these cases requires us to establish two kinds of background. The one is the background of the infamous Executive Order 9066, issued by Franklin Roosevelt on February 19, 1942, approximately 10 weeks after the United States entered into World War II against Japan. The other is the background of the three Japanese Americans who were negatively impacted by the order. Once we have both backgrounds, we can get a sense for the opinions rendered in the first two cases, which were heard simultaneously on uh, June 21, 1943, 
called Yasui versus the United States and Hirabayashi versus the United States. And the third, 18 months later, on December 18th, 1944, Korematsu versus the United States. So let's look at Executive Order 9066. The National Archives website described Executive Order 9066 in this way. Issued by Franklin Roosevelt on February 19th, 1942. This order authorized the forced removal of all persons deemed a threat to national security from the West Coast to relocation centers further inland, resulting in the incarceration of Japanese Americans. The site describes Japanese immigration to Hawaii and the West Coast of the United States between 1861 and 1940, making these observations. Japanese Americans control less than 4% of California's farmland in 1940 but they produce more than 10% of the total value of the state's farm resources. As was the case with other immigrant groups, Japanese Americans settled in ethnic neighborhoods and established schools, houses of worship, and economic and cultural institutions. Ethnic concentration was further increased by real estate agents who would not sell properties to Japanese Americans outside of existing Japanese-American enclaves, and by a 1913 act passed by the California Assembly restricting land ownership to those eligible to be citizens. In 1922, uh, the United States Supreme Court in Ozawa versus the United States upheld the government's right to deny U.S. citizenship to Japanese immigrants. It is easy to picture how Japanese immigrants would be the target of discrimination, particularly from others who could not compete with them. California Governor Earl Warren was certainly a part in had a part in it, but so was Dr. Seuss, who created a cartoon of Japanese Americans that was obviously racist. Dr. Seuss publicly apologized for the cartoon after World War II. The National Archives site describes the evolution of Executive Order 9066. Lobbyists from Western states, many representing competing economic interests or nativist groups, pressured Congress and the President to remove persons of Japanese descent from the West Coast, both foreign-born Issei, meaning first generation of Japanese in the United States, and American citizens. Nisei, the second generation of Japanese in America, U.S. citizens by birthright. During congressional committee hearings, Department of Justice representatives raised constitutional and ethical objections to the uh, proposal. So the U.S. Army carried out the task instead. Here's how the order was implemented. The West Coast was divided into military zones. And on February 19, 1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066 that authorized military commanders to exclude civilians from military areas, although the language of the order did not specify any ethnic group. Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt of the Western Defense Command 
proceeded to announce curfews that included only Japanese Americans. In the next six months, approximately 122,000 men, women, and children were forcibly removed to assembly centers. They were then evacuated to and confined in isolated, fenced, and guarded relocation centers, also known as internment camps. Nearly 70,000 of the evacuees were American citizens. The government made no charges against them, nor could they appeal their incarceration. All lost personal liberties, most lost homes and property as well. Let's take a look at the three Nisei plaintiff backgrounds. The Sotko website provides backgrounds on the three plaintiffs, beginning with Minoru Yasui. When Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, Minoru Yasui was no ordinary 20-something. In fact, he had the distinction of being the first Japanese-American lawyer admitted to the Oregon Bar. In 1940, he began working for the Consulate General of Japan in Chicago, but promptly resigned after Pearl Harbor to return to his native Oregon. Shortly after Yasui's arrival in Oregon, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 on February 19, 1942. The order authorized the military to bar Japanese Americans from entering certain regions, to impose curfews on them, and to relocate them to internment camps. Yasui deliberately defied the curfew. For walking the streets past curfew, Yasui was arrested. During his trial at the U.S. District Court in Portland, the presiding judge acknowledged that the curfew order violated the law, but decided that Yasui had forsaken his U.S. citizenship by working for the Japanese consulate and learning the Japanese language. The judge sentenced him to a year in Oregon's uh, Multnomah County Jail. It continues with Gordon Hirabayashi's background. Gordon Hirabayashi was a University of Washington student when President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066. He initially obeyed the order, but after cutting a study session short to avoid violating the curfew, he questioned why he was being singled out in a way his white classmates were not. Because he considered the curfew to be a violation of his Fifth Amendment rights, Hirabayashi decided to intentionally flout it. For defying Executive Order 9066 by missing curfew and failing to report to an internment camp, Hirabayashi was arrested and convicted in 1942. He ended up jailed for two years and did not win his case when it appeared before the Supreme Court. This is the background on Fred Kuramatsu, as related by ThoughtGo. Love motivated Fred Kuramatsu, a 23-year-old shipyard welder, to defy orders to report to an internment camp. He simply did not want to leave his Italian-American girlfriend. An internment would have separated him from her. After his arrest in May 1942 and subsequent conviction for violating military orders, Kuramatsu fought his case all the way to the Supreme Court. 
here are the Kiribayashi and Yasui opinions of the Supreme Court, which were the first two. The Supreme Court issued the following opinion in Hirabayashi versus the United States, and then referred to the opinion in Yasui versus the United States. One, by the Act of March 21st, 1942, Congress ratified and confirmed Executive Order Number 9066, and thereby authorized and implemented such curfew orders as the military commander should promulgate pursuant to that executive order. Two, it was within the constitutional authority of Congress and the executive acting together to prescribe this curfew order as an emergency war measure. In light of all the facts and circumstances, there was substantial basis for the conclusion in which Congress and the military commander united that the curfew was, as applied was a protective measure necessary to meet the threat of sabotage and espionage, which would substantially affect the war effort and which might reasonably be expected to aid a threatened enemy invasion. Number three, curfew order did not unconstitutionally discriminate against citizens of Japanese ancestry. A. The Fifth Amendment contains no equal protection clause, and it restrains only such discriminatory legislation by Congress as amounts to a denial of due process. B. The curfew order as applied, and at the same time it was applied, was within the boundaries of the war power. C. The adoption by the government in the crisis of war and of threatened invasion of measures for the public safety, based upon the recognition of fact and circumstances, which indicate that a group of one national extraction may menace that safety more than others, is not to be condemned as unconstitutional, merely because in other and in most circumstances, racial distinctions are irrelevant. Four. The promulgation of the curfew order by the military commander was based on no unconstitutional delegation of legislative power. Let's look at the Korematsu opinion. The majority opinion changed. Nothing, uh, that changed nothing from the prior Tunisia cases, but three dissenting opinions, those of Roberts, Murphy, and Jackson, indicate that the Supreme Court was moving away from its hard-line support of the executive branch. Murphy stated, I dissent, therefore, from this legislation of racism. Race, racial discrimination in any form and in any degree has no justifiable part whatever in our democratic way of life. It is unattractive in any setting, but it is utterly revolting among a free people who have embraced the principles set forth in the Constitution of the United States. Jackson's dissent was, Korematsu was born on our soil, of parents born in Japan. The Constitution makes him a citizen of the United States by nativity and a citizen of California by residence. No claim is made that he is not loyal to this country. There's no suggestion that apart from the matter involved here, he is not a law-abiding and well-disposed. Korematsu, however, 
has been convicted of an act not commonly a crime. It consists merely of being present in a state whereof he is a citizen, near the place where he was born and where all his life he has lived. So what is the epilogue of, of these cases? Earl Warren was subsequently nominated by President Eisenhower as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in 1953, serving until his retirement in 1969. Many of the age peers of the three Nisei litigants served in the United States military during World War II, distinguishing themselves. The Baltimore Sun relates, about 33,000 Nisei fought for the United States Army in World War II. Perhaps the best-known Nisei unit was the 100th Battalion of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Immortalized in the film Gopher Broke, this unit fought in the Italian campaign, earning more honors and enduring a higher casualty rate than any combat unit its size. Then show encyclopedia describes the end of the detainment. In October 1944, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments for the Korematsu case along the Mitsui Endo's habeas corpus petition challenging the Army's unlawful detention. It announced its decision on both cases on December 18, 1944. In its opinion on the Korematsu case, the High Court accepted the Army's justification of military necessity and sided with the government. The Endo case resulted in victory, but sidestepped the question of constitutional rights by a law-abiding citizen. The WRA had no legal grounds uh, <clears throat> to detain her. See, ex parte Mitsui Endo in 1944. The day before the Supreme Court decisions traditionally announced on Monday, the War Department preempted the verdicts with a press release that it was revoking the mass incarceration order and freeing the prisoners effective January 2nd, 1945. According to the Robert H. Jackson Center, Fred Korematsu's conviction was overturned in November of 1983 when government documents were found that indicated the government failed to provide the Supreme Court with the information they had that Japanese-American citizens were not, in fact, a national security threat. National Public Radio reports, in 1988, President Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act to compensate more than 100,000 people of Japanese descent who were incarcerated in internment camps during World War II. The legislation offered a formal apology and paid out $20,000 in compensation to each surviving victim. In 1998, Fred Korematsu was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Bill Clinton, who cited Korematsu's efforts. An American who wanted only to be treated like every other American, Fred Korematsu challenged our nation's conscience, reminding us that we must uphold the rights of our own citizens, even as we fight tyranny in other lands. 
So what are the implications for today in the Nisei cases? Unlike Roe v. Wade, which was specifically reversed by the Supreme Court in 2022, the Nisei opinions have never been reversed. Although the Constitution of the United States has no provision for assigning emergency powers, as did the Weimar Constitution, which served as a stepping stone to power for Adolf Hitler, 21st century U.S. presidents are attempting to use their power based upon such events as the discovery of a new virus. Oh, good, good point. And I like your, your emphasis here on the fact that it really wasn't overturned. And uh, I think there's an important point to be made there that simply because a case is not specifically overturned by the Supreme Court does not mean that it has to be followed. Uh, after all, we've talked about Dred Scott already, that uh, clearly we do not follow Dred Scott, although you might say in terms of the court's opinions, uh, Dred Scott has not been overturned. Clearly, it was uh, with the 13th Amendment and its ratification. But it's fascinating to look at this because this is still in the era. And we need to remember that uh, the problem of racism was still uh, ongoing. There was the Plessy v. Ferguson case where basically the Supreme Court said, oh, it's fine as long as they're separate but equal. And that was a issue of transportation on uh, trains and so forth that, uh, uh, and, and bathroom accommodations, all other things. As long as they're separate but equal, we could discriminate based upon race. Of course, that was not overturned until uh, 1954 in the Brown versus Board of Education. So there was quite a period of time when you could say that racism was being practiced by our federal government. And obviously, when we look at the, the Fifth Amendment to our Constitution, the due process was not uh, at all being uh, treated here. They were not accused of any crime. I mean, if someone had been engaged in a crime of treason that is acting against the interest of our government in World War II, clearly, clearly that, that should have been you know, uh, a case brought to court. But nobody was accused of any crime whatsoever. And obviously, the writ of habeas corpus was not respected. By the way, that's a fancy Latin term, show me the body, that if the government arrests you and the government puts you in prison, you could demand a writ of habeas corpus to either release you from prison or the government has to give a list of the charges of the supposed crimes that you have committed. And none of these Japanese had committed any crimes at all. And so, but they just ignored as they did in other cases. Uh, this was uh, done in other cases uh, during the war between the states as well. Just ignore the writ of habeas corpus. Let's throw people in prison as political prisoners. And you might say, well, I'm glad that that's in the past. You know, that that's the history of our country. Yeah, there were some injustices in the past, but oh, we're beyond that today. We're a so much more mature society and we're so much better than our ancestors. But oh, oh, wait a minute. What about those who still are in prison January 6th? And those have been mistreated, grossly mistreated. Some say even uh, subjected to torture. And again, they have not committed uh, and and have not been their their Fifth Amendment really has not been respected of due process. Certainly, they haven't been given a speedy trial that's also uh, guaranteed in in the Sixth Amendment. So we are not beyond the kind of abuse that we see uh, that took place there uh, in each of these Nisei cases. And when we look at uh, and Phil. I 
I appreciate particularly you pointing out in uh, the first two cases, Haribashi and uh, uh, Yasui, that the Congress was saying that the executive order was ratified uh, and confirming that the 9066 was was an executive order that was somehow approved by Congress. But that's a strange way to make legislation. Executive orders only give commands regarding the executive branch and what the employees of the executive branch are supposed to do. It really does not make a law because all lawmaking powers, the very first words following the preamble to our Constitution is all legislative uh, powers here and granted to the Congress and not any power because if all 100 percent granted to Congress, then zero is granted to the executive branch. Zero is granted to uh, the judicial branch. So the judges can't make law any more than uh, the executive branch can make law. So we are in a situation in, in these cases where clear racism was being practiced. And you, you wonder, and, and this calls back the uh, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson case, because Plessy at a very, very small amount of black blood, so to speak. I don't believe the whole theory of, you know, racial blood and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, the claim was that, OK, way back in his ancestry, he was when you saw him, he, was, he looked like a white man generally. But he had this maybe one eighth of a, a black blood, as it said, so an ancestor in his past. So uh, he was, uh, you know. It was all set up to uh, arrange for this to happen, but uh, it's a fascinating story there because Plessy, to the average person, would have appeared to be a white man, which means that the conductor of the train had to make an instantaneous judgment as to the ancestry of Plessy to determine that, okay, based on his ancestry, he cannot be in the whites-only car. He's got to be in the black car or what came to be known as the Jim Crow car. Well, how did they determine the Japanese ancestry. Now, did they just look at people and say, well, you look Japanese. Uh, wait a minute. Does a Japanese look pretty similar to some other uh, Asians, uh, maybe Philippine or, or we know that there's distinctions between them. But who would determine that unless you got out a, you know, an ancestry chart and said, OK, let's look at your ancestors and prove that you are of Japanese ancestry. Uh, so many, many problems going on here. But really what we see happening is a violation of the, the foundational principles of our country. Those are those contained in the Declaration of Independence. There is a creator, God. Our rights come from him and from him alone. And the only purpose of government is to protect those God-given rights. All men are created equal. It doesn't matter your ancestry. It doesn't matter your racial heritage. If you're a citizen of the United States, the entire Constitution is guaranteed to you. Your due process rights guaranteed in the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment and, and, and so on. The other thing that these cases illustrate I think is the danger of allowing the military, our United States military, to have boots on the ground within the borders of these United States. This was clearly a violation that took place during the war between the states as well as the subsequent aftermath of that war with Reconstruction in the South where you had uh, the governments of many southern states, 10 southern states specifically, overthrown by the military and a puppet government installed instead that went ahead then to have to ratify the amendments that were required for them to ratify to come back into the union and so on. This was all unconstitutional. And as a result of that kind of abuse of the military against the people of these United States, a law was passed called Posse Comitatus. 
And that's power of the county or power of the country. And the idea of posse comitatus is we should never allow the military to be enforcing any laws in these United States. And that should be uh, universal even in time of war. That was the point of posse comitatus that we got it wrong during the war between the states. And we got it wrong after the war during Reconstruction. And we're not ever going to allow that to happen again. (laughs) But as you said, Phil, here it is. We allowed it to happen here in World War II, where the army and rightly the other uh, other aspects of our government said, no, no, we're not going to do that. And so ultimately it was the army that was employed uh, by FDR to invoke these and arrest these basically innocent people and put them in incarcerated circumstances. All of this is a violation of our Constitution. But look at the excuses they give. And and uh, as you quoted there in the case, they said it was within the boundaries of the war power. Well, wait a minute. Where's the war power found? Is that in our Constitution? Is there anything that says in time of war, we suspend all these aspects of the Constitution because we're, no, no, no. But that was a tradition begun under the 16th president in the war between the states. We can suspend the Constitution. We can suspend your God-given rights. No, you can't. That was King George's excuse. You know, why I I find that there's some emergency. Therefore, I'm going to suspend your God-given rights. And our founder said, no, no, no. You can never suspend those God-given rights because they're given by God. They're eternal. And because you are acting in violation of our God-given rights, we have another God-given right, our founder said. And that is King George to overthrow your rulership over these 13 colonies and establish a separate government that will protect our God-given rights. Now, this has very uh, important application in, in our day today. Uh, as I mentioned, the J6 uh, folks whose um, God-given rights are being violated, whose constitutional rights are being violated to this very day, and, and nothing's being done by that. Uh, those in Washington, they're allowing this to continue. But also, consider what happens today when you question the election outcomes. And there's a whole lot to question, particularly not just the 2020 now. Now we got the 2022 where there's, oh, massive examples of election fraud that have taken place in many, many states there in Pennsylvania. Quite obviously, I think uh, Fetterman's a supposed win. Uh, that's due to election fraud and what's going on in Arizona. And even here in Maryland, one of those considered deep blue states, they stole a seat in the House of Representatives uh, from uh, uh, who, who should have won, uh, Neil Parrott, but they padded with 10,000 extra votes that came in all the while. Anyway, all kinds of fraud and election cheating. But if you dare question this election fraud, if you're outspoken, what happens is the FBI identifies and labels you a domestic terrorist. That is that you are a threat to the government, according to the FBI, and you get on an FBI watch list. This is wicked. This is a violation of our Constitution. We ought to have every right to question the outcome of elections, because if we cannot question the outcome of an election, then we have election fraud that goes unchecked. And that appears what we have going on. So there's a whole application of what we see taking place here in these cases. The issue there was obviously racism. 
But you can label, you can create any kind of label of different citizens and say, well, some citizens are going to have their God-given rights protected and their constitutional rights secured and others, nah, we think they're going to have them unsecured and we have freedom to arrest them, throw them in the dungeon, torture them or whatever we choose to do. When you have a government that does that, which we see happening in our day and we saw certainly happening to the Japanese there under FDR, you do not have a rightful uh, government, a government that has gone against the Constitution needs to be restored. And that takes we the people who recognize the violations and who stand up against those violations. Now, I'm particularly aggrieved by the Supreme Court opinion in in that uh, part where they say the Fifth Amendment contains no equal protection clause and it restrains only such discriminatory legislation by Congress as amounts to a denial of due process. I object to that whole idea because what is the whole purpose of government? In other words, they're saying, here's what the Constitution says in the Fifth Amendment, and they're restricting themselves just to the language of the Fifth Amendment, ignoring the clear statements in our Declaration of Independence that there is a creator God, our rights come from him, and he has created each one of us equal. Before God, we are equal, and before the law, a just law system, we are supposed to be treated equally. In other words, justice is supposed to be blind. That's why we see the image of Lady Justice holding the scales in her hand, and she's got a blindfold over her eyes. She's not to see uh, the skin color or the ethnicity at all of those who come into the court. She's to be color blind. But you know, today, with the new form of real racism that is called anti-racism and critical race theory and so on, they want to make race a issue again. That if you happen to be of light melanin content in your skin, then you are obviously a racist and we need to do things against you. We need to uh, disfavor you in the legal system because clearly the color of your skin means you are a racist. So here's the irony of what they're doing today. They're claiming they're fighting racism by advancing racism. (laughs) Again, completely rejecting the founding principles of of our constitutional republic. And we need to understand these principles. We need to articulate these principles to restore a rightful understanding that God has given us our rights and God is the one who's created each one of us and he's created us equal in his sight and we should therefore be equal before the law. Mike, what are your thoughts on on these uh, three cases? Is that true what you said about being put on a list? Yes. You know, I well, bet you I want to go out list. there on the I want to go out there on the record and say that this is the most secure election in the history of all elections, <laughs> all right? I'm, I'm on the record right now. You hear me? <laughs> you two can both vouch for me. Oh, we will vouch for you <laughs> from the gulag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be much help, I guess, right? Uh, thanks, Pastor Whitney. So, I've got a couple of things I want to talk about, and I want to say that both of you did an incredible job of going through these cases. It's a whole lot to digest and to uh, uh, put this out there in a way that's understandable uh, with multiple different cases with similar issues going on. You did a great job. So I don't have too much more to add on that. Uh, what I will do is I'll talk a little bit about the idea of as to whether these decisions were ever reversed, because the answer is kind of. I know that's a helpful answer, right? Uh, first, what you have to understand is, as Phil mentioned, uh, there were quorum novice petitions filed on behalf of Yasui uh, Hirabayasha and Kuramatsu, and they ultimately won. Now, if you look at the 
decisions in these petitions, you'll note that the government made some Bush League arguments opposing these petitions, which I find absolutely incredible that they would go out there and not join in these petitions. You know, it's one thing if you've got somebody who's representing a criminal defendant and somebody who's being prosecuted by the government, you understand that you're really not there to necessarily find the correct answer in the adversarial proceeding. So you might see somebody up there who is a criminal defendant, their attorney's making an argument on their behalf, and you'll say, well, how could they possibly do that? Well, if you don't do that, then the system collapses. But when you've got the government up there, who's the prosecutorial body, and they're making arguments for the sake of trying to win their case rather than get it right. I think that hits people differently uh, when they go up there and do that. For example, one of the arguments that was presented was an argument based on latches. And latches is a legal principle that if you wait too long to bring something up, then you've waived uh, your entitlement to receive the relief. And uh, so the idea was they should have brought these petitions sooner. And because they did not, they should not be entitled to the relief, which I think is total nonsense. This seems like something that nobody in their right mind could get up there and say anything other than, yes, we've got nothing to add, Your Honor. Uh, But they did. uh, But ultimately, the petitions were successful. Uh, Just because the convictions were overturned, though, doesn't necessarily mean that the holdings were reversed and overruled. You got to understand what it takes for something to be overruled. The idea of precedent is that we've got a a general understanding of the way future cases uh, are likely to be resolved. And so when you have something that's overturned on other grounds, meaning the reason that it was overturned, the reason why it was reversed, doesn't have to do with the specific holding that you're looking at, Uh, then that particular uh, part of the holding, you don't have anything helpful from it being overturned or reversed. So uh, the reason why these petitions were granted did not have specifically, legally, uh, to do with the holdings in and of themselves that we're discussing here today. So that's not very helpful. And if you go further in time, uh, you can find some very uh, interesting correspondence from the attorneys who represented these parties in these petitions. And there was an opportunity uh, not too long ago, I believe it was in 2014, there was a a litigation coming before the the Supreme Court, the the Hedges case is what it was called. And the attorneys who represented the plaintiffs in the petitions that we're discussing uh, implored the Solicitor General to ask the Supreme Court to overrule uh, Kuramatsu in particular. And I'm going to go ahead and and read the text of that correspondence. It says, quote, a request by your office that the court formally overrule the interment decisions would fulfill the duty of absolute candor that was sadly lacking in the government's briefs and arguments in 1943 and 1944. Should you decide not to make such a request, however, We urge that your office make clear in its response to the Hedges petition that the government does not consider the internment decisions as valid precedent for governmental or military detention of individuals or groups without due process of law and is not among any authorities to which Section 1021E refers. Um, We also make this request in light of the prophetic warning in Korematsu dissent of Justice Robert Jackson that the court's approval of the indefinite detention of American citizens established 
a quote principle that lies about like a loaded weapon ready for the hand of any authority that can bring claim of an urgent need. Disarming that weapon through overruling the internment cases would prevent the subsequent administration from relying on them as authority in any future case, however remote that possibility may seem today. Now, the reason why he says how, uh, however remote that possibility may seem today is because as a practical matter, regardless of whether the court has officially overruled these decisions, I think you'd be out of your mind to walk into court and say, uh, Your Honor, you got to rule in our favor based on Korematsu. I don't think that any court's going to look on that fondly. Uh, so whether or not it's officially on the books overruled, you still don't have much to gain from it. It doesn't hold the weight of precedent as we think of it, as in the fact of, hey, you've already ruled on this particular issue, so you have to rule for us in this decision. You don't have that with these decisions. Everybody looks on them and basically disregards them. Now, with that being said, uh, back to my, my response of kind of as to whether it was overruled. You notice in the dissent there was that loaded weapon uh, statement made. There's an article a law review article that was written in 2018 called Korematsu Overruled, Far From It, the Supreme Court Reloads the Loaded Weapon. And in this this article, they talk specifically about Trump versus Hawaii, and that had to deal with the, the quote, Muslim ban, as it was dubbed. And Justice Roberts, in that opinion, specifically referenced Korematsu. And the reason why he referenced it was because it was brought up by the dissents who basically said, hey, this is the same thing. How could we uh, rule in favor of this restriction in light of us all knowing that Korematsu was wrong? Uh, but uh, Justice Roberts addressed this directly in his opinion. I'm going to read his quote from the Trump versus Hawaii opinion. He says, quote, finally, the dissent invokes Korematsu versus the United States. Whatever rhetorical advantage the dissent may see in doing so, Korematsu has nothing to do with this case. The forcible relocation of U.S. citizens to concentration camps solely and explicitly on the basis of race is objectively unlawful and outside the scope of presidential authority, but it is wholly inept to liken that mor morally repugnant order to a facially neutral policy denying certain foreign nationals the privilege of admission. The entry suspension is an act that is well within executive authority and could have been taken by any other president. The only question is evaluating the actions of this particular president and promulgating an otherwise valid proclamation. The dissent's reference to Korematsu, however, affords this court the opportunity to make express what is already obvious. Korematsu was gravely wrong the day it was decided, has been overruled in the court of history, and, to be clear, has no place in law under the Constitution. So did the Supreme Court of the United States overrule Korematsu? Well, they said as much. I think the issue is that uh, they weren't specifically reaching a holding that went contrary to the holding in Korematsu. And Justice Roberts, by saying Korematsu has nothing to do with this case, <laughs> puts them in that category. So has it technically been overruled? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it's technically been overruled, but I think that gives us a pretty good idea of where the Supreme Court stands on this. One more thing I want to I make clear. 
because uh, when we talk about all these different cases, Phil had mentioned that ex parte endo is kind of difficult to reconcile. I agree, and I don't know that anybody else in the world could come to you other than the justices who wrote it and say that you could reconcile uh, ex parte endo with the remainder of these decisions. The dissent made as clear that they were of that mindset, that you can't reconcile the two. And unfortunately, uh, that brings us back to the principle of what does it all mean? What does the precedent mean? And just like I said, how the precedent of those older cases would not hold up today uh, for that very same reason. They can reach these different decisions that don't make any logical sense that you cannot reconcile and they will stand. Mike, I have a question about uh, has the the uh, Supreme Court uh, ever specifically acknowledged that there is no emergency power granted to the executive in the Constitution of the United States. Oh, I was reading something about that uh, a little bit earlier, and I, I can't reference the, the case that had that discussion. I'll have to take a look into that perhaps for next week. <laughs> okay, wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for doing that, because it is of a grave concern, particularly when we have citizens today, not based on race so much anymore, but based on, you know, a political opinion or based on just a questioning, uh, just simply questioning the outcome of the election 2020 and now the outcome of election 2022, that we're being labeled domestic terrorists. And that term would give perhaps the plausibility to say, well, like these people were a threat uh, during World War II, anybody that's labeled a domestic terrorist today is a threat and we can round them up put them in and I appreciate that in Trump v. Hawaii that they were calling it a concentration camp. If I caught that language correctly, Mike, that was very interesting. They were actually using the term concentration camp rather than the milder kind of term of internment camp. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the government is doing things like that, you know that oh, your freedom uh, it has been lost. Yeah, there's there's no question about it. I don't know how you kind of wonder what the other people in the United States, aside from the Japanese Americans, were thinking when this was all going on back then. And I do understand that there was some kind of rumbles about doing this to German citizens during World War Two, but I, I don't think that ever happened. Is that correct? Either of you know whether that uh, the Germans were ever rounded up like this? Well, I, I encountered something many uh, months back, maybe several years back, uh, indicating that it, just a very, very limited uh, number of individuals uh, um, were somehow involved in anything that would be considered comparable to the Nisei situation. So really, uh, even if there is something out there, and, and it would extend to Italian Americans right. as well, certainly, and even Hungarian and Romanian, uh, I believe, because they were considered a part of the uh, uh, the Nazi uh, uh, alliance. But I don't, I don't think that there's anything of the same magnitude out there at all. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd like to make a, a comment before we go further because uh, the first time I got exposed to this was uh, when I was with an organization called General Electric MetaNet, and we were. Uh, trying to put up the first medical information network. Uh, my superior was Harris Shirakawa, who was a Nisei, and just a marvelous man who had, you know, uh, no negative comments about that, a, a pure American. Um, and really, he was a pleasure to, to work for. And Harris, if you're still out there, this one's for you. 
<laughs> Great. Well, I think there, there should be, however, a concern about treason, um, because those who are committed to a communist overthrow of our government are very prevalent. I mean, they're in the highest offices of the land. And uh, clearly, they are not committed to the American form of government. They're not committed to our Constitution. They're very willing to violate the Constitution, the rights of the J6 uh, people imprisoned and so on. Uh, and so there should be a concern among the American people about traitors in our midst. But those traitors in our midst should not be identified as those who stand with the Constitution. I understand the FBI actually some years back per, uh, produced a, a pamphlet uh, in the state of Missouri that was published to all the FBI agents of Missouri and I think also was distributed to the state police of Missouri and basically said anybody that talks about the Constitution and uh, stands up for the Constitution is a domestic terrorist. And in fact, they even named political candidates that if you had their name on your bumper, you know, the way you put a Ron Paul bumper sticker on your car, you were to be considered a domestic terrorist. And the FBI actually published this uh, this report. And that's outrageous. I another reason why the FBI should be taken down as a terrorist organization in opposition to our government and in opposition to our Constitution and clearly not uh, actually doing the job that we the people need it to do, in fact, doing the opposite. And uh, there but one organization that is undermining our constitutional republic. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about uh, the, the area of treason. And of course, after World War II, uh, two of the most uh, famous uh, traitors uh, were the Rosenbergs. Very, very famous trial. And I, actually, the the uh, you know finally when the Soviet Union fell and then the uh, documents became available, we found that our government, you know, uh, McCarthy was not wrong. Our government was filled with those who were in the pay or in the commitment to the communist international Comintern or whatever whatever that organization is called that you know basically committed to overthrowing our government, like the Dulles brothers. And anyway, we go on with a list of that. But my concern right now with what we're dealing with is the outcome of this election. I think there's clear election fraud, but if you bring the topic up, you're immediately labeled a conspiracy theorist and, oh, uh, you're a traitor to our government and <laughs> potentially you will be labeled a domestic terrorist. Uh, uh, what's your thoughts on, on this that's happening that we're seeing right before our very eyes? Well, uh, go, ahead, go ahead, Mike. You, you go first. Okay. I, I pulled up that list of the militia violent extremism from the FBI. And uh, so some of the symbols include 2A with a handgun on it, um, the, the come and take it flag with the cannon on it, the Gadsden flag, the Betsy Ross flag, oh. <laughs> the, the, the Liberty Tree, and then just in general, revolutionary war imagery. <laughs> so I can't have any of that. <laughs> the three percenter symbol. And then there are various quotes from the founding fathers. So apparently the founding fathers were the like very serious, um, violent extremists, apparently. Oh, my. They're terrorists, huh? Well, I can't, uh, I can't top that list. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh when I say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Washington, D.C. is clearly out of control and, and clearly not serving we the people. It's uh, it's serving itself 
and uh, obviously holding on to power by, I believe, uh, election fraud, uh, election fraud that's protected from the federal level. And, uh, you know, when you try to uncover election, I know of election fraud here in the state of Maryland that uh, is very clear. But uh, when you try to uncover it, uh, either you've got to have a very deep pocket to sue and, and to uh, pursue in court uh, the, to bring justice to the matter, or um, you get labeled and, uh, you know, you become an enemy of the state. So it's like, wait a minute. The very purpose of the civil government has been turned on its head, and the civil government, rather than protecting our God-given rights, is protecting its own power and its own continuation in power. At least that's what I'm seeing here. You know, I think we had the the classic example in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, yes, I agree with the comments that you've made, Pastor Whitney, about the difficulty in getting to the specifics and you know, getting the witnesses and all the rest of it going through due process, is a, it's just a, an incredibly uh, traumatic and lengthy process to, uh, to do something like that, very costly. Uh, on the other hand, we've got the issue that's right out in front of us, available to everybody, and that is Pennsylvania Act 77, which, you know, any idiot should know uh, that it's unconstitutional. However, the Supreme Court of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania says otherwise, that PA 77, in spite of very specific language in the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, you know, the majority of the justices uh, in the Supreme Court of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania said, no, 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 you got that all wrong. Up is down, you know, in is out, and the sun <laughs> rises in the west and sets in the east. So don't believe your lying eyes. Believe yeah. whatever the, the court says the truth is. And, and uh, you know, you're just an ignoramus. Uh, so, yeah, your opinion doesn't matter. Their opinion does, but your opinion, it does yeah. not matter. Yeah, this, is, this is clearly the Humpty Dumpty court of uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. You know, Phil, when this was ongoing, we had this conversation about how a colleague and I were disagreeing upon what the end result was going to be. I said that based on the existing case law, there's zero chance that the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania could reach the result that it did. And he said that you could reconcile uh, that previous court decision with uh, ruling in favor of upholding Act 77. And then when the decision came down, he reached out to me and said, oh, I, I was right. I was right. I said, read the opinion. You were wrong because the court decided to overrule that previous case because they knew they couldn't reconcile the two. Yeah. Uh, so ultimately, that's how they reached that decision. I also found out from background and, you know, I'm not big into the uh, the uh, behind doors politics end of things, but. As I understand from what I was told from somebody who is more familiar with this stuff, that the reason the Republicans were all on board for Act 77 was specifically to prevent the straight ticket voting from here on out. And if you notice this time around, you had to vote for each individual candidate, Phil. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's my understanding as well. And and I don't have high, uh, high marks for the Republican Party of, of Pennsylvania. What a stupid Certainly. trade, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. And, you know, Shoot yourself in both feet, right? Yeah, I mean, who cares about that? <laughs> yeah, talk about, you know, putting things in perspective and, and looking at the, the uh, long run versus the short run. I mean, uh, the Republican Party of Pennsylvania is notorious for bad decisions. 
I mean, if you look back, uh, for example, on uh, the George W. Bush uh, waning years, uh, I believe it was in October of, of uh, let's see, that would be 2008, um, when this whole thing about the bailouts uh, came out. Well, who was it that um, uh, was the turncoat, the Benedict Arnold? Guy by the name of Representative Jim Gerlach. Okay, fine. And 75% of the people, at least, maybe 80%, were opposed to the bailouts. I mean, they all saw what was going on. It was special interest and so forth. And no, the sky wasn't going to fall if, if you let the people who uh, had gotten themselves into trouble, uh, uh, you know, take on the consequences of that. No, the, the uh, Republican Party here in Pennsylvania cared little about that. All they wanted was to reelect a Republican, you know, if he was a Republican or not. Well, okay. And then there's the story of our, our good friend, uh, Arlen Spencer, the, re- the Democrat in, in Republican clothes for decades. You know, it's it's just a very sad situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Arlen Specter, I guess he's gone on to the great beyond. So uh, he's faced his final day in court. <laughs> yes, God, there is a final day in court. The great white throne judgment is coming. And all of these who sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution that are violating that oath, they're going to face that judgment day. But I guess the real question that, that we're facing is we've now evidence in 2020 and now 2022 that we don't have an honest election system across the country, that we've got cheating going on, a massive scale of cheating, and we can't rein it in. We tried here in Maryland to do what we called a double check. That is, that there would be volunteers who would hand count the ballots in certain precincts. We'd select a random number of precincts throughout the state just to check and see if the machines were being honest. Was the count coming out of the machines the same as the count that was done with a hand count? And Linda Lamone, the head of the Board of Elections in Maryland, denied the citizens the right. What's she trying to hide? Why is she so afraid to see evidence that would affirm? It would be good to affirm, would it not, to the citizens that, yes, these machines are honest. Yes, they're not being hacked. Yes, the numbers coming out of these machines are actually the numbers that were scanned. And I would contend that the only way we can have an honest election is that every precinct hand counts all the ballots, that are paper ballots, not electronic, nothing electronic. And the precinct numbers must agree. Everybody that counts them, the, the numbers must come out the same before those numbers leave the precinct and go to any central collection point, whether it's a county collection point or a state collection point. Otherwise, we don't really know that we have honest elections in America. Well, I would go further than that and say, and I agree with you, certainly. Uh, I, I would go further than that and say that the idea of absentee balloting uh, certainly, as it has been distorted in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, uh, has to be rejected. Uh, yes, you know, the, there are compassionate reasons for certain uh, uh, absentee ballot uh, situations. And there were four that were identified in the Constitution of the, the Commonwealth here. Uh, but to go beyond that is just inviting disaster. Like the what? What was it? Ten thousand votes uh, mysteriously showed up, and they all yeah. happened to be for the Democratic mm-hmm. part. You know, come on, give us, give us a break. 
So, and, and so we, the people, we, the people need to demand of those who represent us or who claim to represent us at the state level as well as at the federal level, we need to demand true election reform that would get us back to an honest vote. And you're right. The honest vote is one day, no week long voting, one day. Everyone votes in person unless there's very extreme cases, very limited cases that would allow absentee ballots. But we need to know our Constitution, which is why we are on the radio. We the people, the Constitution matters coming to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL. We invite you to join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m. as we continue to look at the dirty dozen, the Supreme Court cases that are the worst.